I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be specifically looking at verses 35 through to 45 this morning. But I'm going to read for us from verse 32 to 45, just for context. So Mark chapter 1, verses 32 through to 45. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, that is Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out." And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Father, as we look to behold Jesus here in your word now, illumine our minds by your spirit. Cause your light to shine abroad into our hearts that we might be moved by this Jesus that we behold, that we claim to love. Help us to see him in his glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last several weeks, we've been looking at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Mark chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we, we looked at his authority in his teaching. And not only that, his authority and his power over the demonic forces when he cast out the demon from that man. And here in this remaining chapter, we learn other glorious things about Jesus about this man. I've said this, I think, several times that when we gather on Sundays, the the primary reason why we gather is not so much to get principles on how to live, but it's primarily to focus our minds and our hearts on Jesus, to ponder this man that we claim to worship, to ponder this man who is more than a man. He is the son of the living God. And that's really our primary purpose here in this passage. We come to this passage not 
primarily with the intention of how should we live, but with who is this Jesus? What is he like? And then from that, we then conclude how ought we to live in light of who he is, in light of what he is like. John Owen said this incredible statement about the Christian life. He says this, let us live in constant contemplation of Christ's glory. As we do, virtue will proceed from him to repair our spiritual decay, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in obedience. When our souls are filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, they will discard all causes of spiritual weakness. Nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls as a constant view of Christ and his glory. And I pray that that will happen to us this morning, that as we comprehend, as we ponder Jesus in these verses, we are simply contemplating a small portion of who Jesus is in this text. And I pray that our spirits might be renewed within us. Well, the first thing I want us to see from this passage is Jesus, the man of prayer. Jesus, the man of prayer. As we saw in verses 32 through 34, Jesus was extremely busy on the Sabbath. He was healing a demon-possessed man. He was healing Simon's mother-in-law. And then later that evening, all the people in the village came to the came to the door seeking healing from various diseases and also demon possession. He was busy doing ministry. We often forget this, but Jesus would have experienced tiredness. He would have known what it's like to feel exhausted. And it's interesting that the next thing Mark tells us is that the following morning, he rises early to find a place to pray. As he says in verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now we're not told why Jesus did this. We're not told what Jesus prayed. Yet it seemed necessary for us to know this. Mark tells us this for a reason. Why? Well, one of Mark's goals in his gospel is to reveal to his readers what true discipleship is, what it means to truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think Mark is simply conveying to us that Jesus was a man of prayer. And therefore, as his disciples, so we ought to be men and women of prayer. See, Jesus is being held up as an example to follow. We know this from Scripture that Jesus is what we call humanity par excellence. He lives and displays the life that every human being ought to live and display. So what do we learn about Jesus and him seeking allotted time to pray to his Father? Well, first, it it simply reveals his dependence upon his father. As a man, he was dependent upon his father, God Almighty. Remember, the day before, Jesus 
spent hours teaching, healing, confronting the demonic, and early the next morning, he saw it necessary for him to get before his father and to express his dependence because prayer is fundamentally an act of dependence. Independence and autonomy is a scene as strengths in our society. But Jesus challenges such a notion. He is superior to all humans, yet it was necessary for him as a human to place his dependence upon his heavenly Father. In his humanity, he displayed what every human ought to live like, dependence upon God through prayer. You see, every time you and I truly pray, we're acknowledging our frailty. In one sense, we're acknowledging our mortality. We're acknowledging that we are utterly dependent upon God for everything, even our very breath. And every time we neglect prayer, we act and we think like the world, believing that we can do everything and anything without the strength of God. Secondly, what, when Jesus prays, it, it also reveals to us his desire to commune with his Father. Despite all the demands that were upon him, Jesus sought time to commune with his heavenly Father. He longed for sweet communion with his Father. And so he sought a place where he could be alone to pour out his heart to God. See, Jesus won't allow the demands of ministry to prevent him from communing with his Father. He will protect this sacred time because it's what he desires most. Jesus reveals to us what true humanity ought to be, a life soaked in communion with God. We all know that there are lots of reasons to neglect prayer, but there are also many more reasons for why we ought not to. Remember this past week, I was on the phone with Peter Frieswick, and he asked me what he could be praying for, and, and I said to him, to be honest with you, the last several weeks have just been crazy for me, and I found that it was very hard to pray, just to get before the Lord and spend some time in prayer. There are so many things that want our attention, and I remember just feeling spent, and, and so Peter prayed for me over the phone, and then, and then I open up my Bible to begin studying for this week, and I came to this passage and saw how Jesus, despite the demands that were upon him, he made time to pray. He set aside time to seek his Father, to commune with his Father. We must learn as Christians the secret of solitude, a time to commune with God where we escape all the other demands of life, it was John Piper who said uh, something along the lines of, social media will take away any excuse before God for why we didn't pray. Our cell phones will take away any excuse before God for why we didn't pray. You see, prayer is a revelation of our love. It's a revelation of our love. It reveals to us whether or not we truly love God. I find it hard to believe that a person can truly love God and not give time to commune with God. Jesus loved his Father. 
And it was his love that drove him to fellowship with his father. As individuals, we need to be people of prayer, but also as a church. In fact, one of the best things you can do is pray with other brothers and sisters and for other brothers and sisters when you're in a season of prayerlessness. We all go through it. We all experience the demands of life. Some of us have more time than others. I have no doubt that being a father very soon is going to drastically challenge my times of prayer. But it doesn't excuse me. Because there are always other things that one can give up in order to commune with God. See, one of the most loving things you can do for your church family is to be a person of prayer. Because a person who communes with God will become like God. So Jesus was a man of prayer, and as his followers, we ought to be people of prayer. Secondly, in this passage, we see that Jesus was a man of purpose. He was a man of purpose. Jesus was a man with a singular focus. While Jesus is praying, we're told in verse 36 that that Peter and, and some of the others began looking for him. Look at verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, that is Peter, Simon, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, most likely, Peter was trying to get Jesus to come back, as there were many more people wanting to experience the healing ministry of Jesus. And that's what I think Peter means when he says, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. The crowds were wanting Jesus to come to return and heal them. Now, you would think that Jesus Jesus would do that very thing, that he would go back and heal them. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't allow the expectations and the demands of the people to dictate what he will do next. As he says in verse 38 in response, And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, we're not told what Peter's response was when Jesus said those very words, but I can imagine what his response would have been. But but Jesus, there's all these other people that need healing in the village that you were just in. They need healing from sickness and disease. What do you mean, let us go to the next towns? Are you going to neglect those people? And in this moment, Jesus was teaching Peter and us, what his primary focus was. You see, at this point in the narrative, the crowds primarily view Jesus as a miracle worker. They primarily go to him for healing from sickness and disease. And Jesus, in his love and compassion, grants these things. But Jesus didn't come primarily to be a miracle worker. His primary task, apart from his death, was to confront mankind with their need for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled to God, for the kingdom of God had drawn near. His miracles were a testimony to the kingdom, but it wasn't the primary focus for why he came. As he states in verse 38, 
And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That is why I came out. The idea in that phrase is this. This is why I came forth from God. I came forth from God primarily to preach the gospel about repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus was sent by his Father to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and to grant forgiveness of sins. And the voice and the demands of the people would not dictate his decision making. There was one voice that directed him. It was the voice of his heavenly Father. He was about fulfilling the will of his Father, not the will of the people. Now, there's a lesson for us to learn here as individuals, but also as a church. This might sound offensive, but you need to hear this. Jesus wasn't primarily driven by need. He wasn't primarily driven by need. It was his Father's will that directed him. And I think so much of Christian ministry today can be so easily driven by need above everything else. Sorry. There's this and this need, and therefore we need to do this and this in order to reach this need. The average lifespan of a pastor, not lifespan, I mean pastor as in being a pastor, is about five to seven years. I think a lot of pastors get into the ministry and they see all these needs that need to be met. And so they, they go hard and they start all these different things and they give so much of their time to, to meeting these needs. And within five to seven years, they are bitter, they hate being a pastor, and they're done. They leave the ministry. I was in a conversation at this pastor's group that I'm a part of that meets once a month and the pastor was talking to me about how he's working bivocational because the church is only about 35 people and so he he works part-time and then he also works part-time at the church and he was telling me how he's just he's totally spent he's burnt out and so I began to ask him well what are all the things you're doing and he said well I felt the need to start a, a small group ministry at our church um, I run evangelism programs, I lead the corporate prayer meetings, I then prepare my sermons, and on top of that, he has another job. And I simply asked him, why are you doing all those things? And he said, well, because there's need. There, there, I got to run this, this, this small group ministry. And I said, why do you need to run a small group ministry? You're 35 people. You just have a big Bible study. But he felt this need. He felt like he had to meet these things that the people wanted, or, or even if it wasn't what the people wanted. And so he worked himself to death rather than seeking the will of his Father and asking God, God, what is it in the short time that I have every week to give my focus to? See, I asked him, how, how many hours a week does he spend in preparing his sermons? And he said to me, three to five hours. And I said to him, you're not fulfilling your task as a pastor. You should be giving, if you're working 24 hours as a pastor part-time, at least 15 hours to the study and the preparation of God's word. But he felt the demands. He felt the needs. He was driven by need. And listen, 
It's not just pastors like myself who fall prey to this, who fall prey to being driven by need. With the globalization of our world, we hear of more needs than ever before. And there's this feeling as humans, not just as Christians, but as humans, that if we don't do anything about it, we have somehow fallen short or failed. And so we at least will make a tweet about it or a Facebook post to acknowledge it. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek to meet people's needs, but know this, there will always be need. You remember Jesus when when the woman comes and washes his feet and, and the disciples are mad because the perfume that she uses could have been sold and given to the poor? What's Jesus' response? You will always have the poor with you. What she has done for me is a beautiful thing. See, there will always be need, brothers and sisters, in your life, which means we ought to be people who prayerfully consider and be wise in our decision-making with what specifically we give ourselves to as individuals and as a local church. We are not Jesus. We cannot meet the needs of every human being. Just because there's a need doesn't mean we ought to tackle that need. We must be a people who seek the will of God, not merely the voices of need. You see, Jesus, he loved people, he had compassion on them, he cared for them. But he was not driven primarily by need. He was a man who was driven by the will of God. Not only that, we see here, that Jesus, his, his purpose, his, his goal in life was fulfilling the will of his Father. God had given him a task and Jesus intentionally sought to fulfill the task that was laid before him. He was devoted to the will of God. He was devoted to God's purposes. And here in this passage, the purpose for why he came was to confront the people through his preaching that they needed to be reconciled to God. And so a simple question for each of us this morning is this. What are you devoted to? What dictates your life? What are you living for? What controls you? What governs your decision making? Is it the will of God or is it your own will? Is it the will of God or is it the demands of your parents? Is it the will of God or is it the demands of your spouse? Is it the will of God or is it the demands of society? What is it that you are living for? I remember when I was, I think about 10, I've probably shared this story, but I'm quite young, so I don't have a ton of life experience. So you'll hear the same story over and over again. Um, I remember when I was 10 and my dad and I were studying the Bible together and I don't remember the passage we were looking at, but he said to me, Peter, you know I'm your father. And I said, yes. And he said, as your father, you're supposed to obey me. I said, yes. You're supposed to honor me as your father. Yes. And then he said this, but I'm not your Lord. And if there's ever a time when you grow in your faith and Jesus is calling you to do something and I'm telling you to do otherwise, listen to the voice of your Lord, not the voice of your father. See, my dad taught me a very important life lesson in that moment. There is one voice 
that has absolute supremacy over my life. It's not my wife, it's not my parents, it's not my friends, it's not the church, it's Jesus alone. And it is the same for you. It is Jesus alone. So let us meet needs. Let us be a people who are zealous for good works and and caring for those in need, but let us not be controlled by need. The will of God, the voice of Jesus, must be the controlling factor in our lives. Jesus was a man of purpose. He did not allow the demands of the people to dictate what he would give his time to. He was determined to fulfill the will of God, and that's why we're told in verse 39 that he went throughout all the land areas of Galilee preaching and proclaiming in the synagogues and casting out demons. So this Jesus was a man of prayer. He was a man of purpose. Thirdly, and the, the main focus of this message is Jesus was a man of compassion. We've already seen this in his willingness to heal the many who came to the door. But his compassion is explicitly made clear in his encounter with the leper. Look at verses 40, uh, verse 40. So after he's been preaching in these synagogues and casting out demons, a leper came to him, imploring him, that is pleading with him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. It's important we not assume that this man's leprosy is what we would refer to as modern day leprosy. In the Old Testament, the word word leper was used for many different kinds of horrific skin diseases. And in Leviticus 13 and 14, these, these two chapters are instructions for the people of Israel on what to do when someone experiences leprosy. Because according to Levitical law, one was considered unclean and therefore needed to be removed from the camp in order to protect the purity and sanctity of the people. And so this leper comes to Jesus out of nowhere He was probably following him as he was teaching. And what you see in this this individual is you see his humble helplessness. He came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, this man didn't doubt Jesus' ability. He knew that Jesus had the power. The question that's laid before us is, is Jesus willing? If you will, you can make me clean. And we know from the passage that Jesus was truly willing, as he said in verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Well, there's several things we need to highlight here in these few words. The first is this. It was Jesus' heartfelt compassion that led him to miraculously act. This isn't merely Jesus understanding this man's sorrows. He felt it in his gut, so to speak. He shared in the pain of this leper. You could say it actually created a level of anguish in Jesus when he looked upon this leper. 
And it was this compassion that led to his action. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. So Jesus miraculously cures this man out of a place of compassion and love for this man. But we need to ask this. Why did Jesus touch him? Why did Jesus touch him? Because he didn't need to touch him. All Jesus had to say was, be clean, and he would have been clean. But we're told that he touched him. Literally, he took hold of him. Why? Well, as a leper, we know that this man was considered ceremonially unclean. And so most likely, people wouldn't have come near to him for a fear of also becoming unclean, or even worse, getting the very disease that he may have had. Which means it's possible that this man hadn't been touched by another human in years. You know, you and I, we we take for granted the physical touch of other humans. But when you don't experience it at all, it's as though you lose a part of your humanity. It's one of our most basic needs. It's partly what makes us human. We're relational creatures, and a part of that relational dynamic is healthy physical touch. You can only imagine the the isolation and loneliness this man would have felt. See, when Jesus touched him, He was meeting one of his most basic needs, and I think restoring a little part of his dignity. He didn't have to touch him. He could have just cured him. But this man didn't simply need to be cured. He needed to be loved. And that's what Jesus did when he touched him. I remember when I was in Ottawa, interning at a church there. Um, And there was a man coming out to the church for probably about three weeks up to that point. I'll give him the name uh, James. But out of nowhere, he contacted me and he asked to meet with me and he was probably in his 40s. And so I met with him privately and as we began to talk, he began to weep and just weep and weep. And he shared with me that he had been living a a homosexual lifestyle. And he was pouring his heart out to me in utter tears and brokenness about how dirty and, and filthy he felt and how much shame he felt from the lifestyle that he was living. And I just listened. But there was something in me, and I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit, that said to me, you need to go and just hold that man. And so I got up and I actually held him in my arms, this grown man, and he was weeping, tears flowing down his face. My shirt was covered in his tears. I didn't say anything, I just held him. And I think in that moment, though he had experienced a lot of touch in his life from men, it was never healthy. And I think in that moment, I was able to hold him and show him that there is a love that you can receive from a man that is healthy 
and whole. And I think in that moment, there was an element in which I restored an element of his dignity. And I think that's what Jesus does here with this leper. He's never been touched, this man, in years. And he comes and he takes hold of him. And he says, I will make you clean. And he makes him clean. You see, friends, we don't just need our problems solved. We need to be touched by the one who is full of love, Jesus Christ. Now notice that Jesus didn't become unclean by touching him, but rather the man became clean. Jesus said, be clean, and he was made immediately clean. See, any other person would have been made ceremonially unclean by touching this leper. Because under Levitical law, the unclean makes the clean unclean by touch. In other words, if you're unclean and you touch the clean, that clean thing or person becomes unclean. But this scenario with Jesus isn't the unclean versus the clean. This is the unclean versus the holy. Jesus is so superior to this man's uncleanliness, he merely speaks and the man is made clean. It's as though the holiness and purity of Jesus is so powerful that the unclean cannot survive in his presence. He purifies the uncleanliness of humanity. The unclean can't prevail when touched by pure holiness. This is the healing power of Jesus and the compassionate heart of Jesus on full display. This man is utterly unique, for he is the Son of God. Now after Jesus heals him, he gives him specific instruction. He, he sternly charges him to tell no one. And most likely, this was Jesus not wanting his own fame to spread. He didn't want to be known primarily as a miracle worker. I wonder if those prosperity preachers on teachers on, on TV would, would learn from Jesus in that regard. So he charges him not to tell anyone, but then he tells him to do the necessary things that were, that were to be done according to the Levitical law. Look at verse 44. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. According to Leviticus 13 and 14, there were specific sacrifices that were to be made when one had been restored from being unclean. After they were outside the camp, they would come in and they would be examined by the priests and then they would make specific sacrifices for cleansing. And Jesus wants him to follow those steps as a proof to the priests that because of Jesus, God is doing something unique. But sadly, we read in verse 45 that he didn't follow Jesus' instruction. As he says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. It's possible that Mark holds up this healed man as an example to not follow. When one experiences the mercy and kindness of Jesus, obedience is the proper response, not disregard. But here's what I want us to think about. None of us here this morning, I don't think, are lepers 
in the literal sense. But in another sense, we are. We're spiritually unclean, and we need the holy, purifying cleansing of Jesus. You see, if you, if you have a biblical worldview, if you have a proper way of understanding the world biblically, what we understand is this, that the material world, that which we touch and see, is always meant to convey deeper spiritual realities, deeper ideas. So take, for example, I use this often, take, for example, a lion. None of us simply observe a lion and go, well, look at his fur and look at his, uh, his claws and look at the size of his teeth and, and the whiskers on his nose. Like, we acknowledge those things, but we also go deeper with what a lion is. We said, look at his, his strength, his power, his, his kingliness. There's a reason why we have the term king of the jungle. In other words, we would never reduce a lion to his mere physical, biological realities. We tell ourselves that a lion is so much more than that. He conveys certain ideas, certain truths. The same is true with a chihuahua. It conveys certain ideas. You would never tell your kid, grow up to be like a chihuahua. <laughs> right? You tell your kid to be strong like a lion. See, all the material world is conveying to us deeper realities. You think of sleep. Every time you put your head down on that pillow and you fall asleep, you are reminded, confronted with your death. You are reminded with your mortality your weakness. But every time you rise in the morning, there is a deeper truth being proclaimed from the heavens that one day we will rise. We will experience resurrection. We see it with the seasons, both death and life, with fall and the, the falling of the leaves and the, and the flowers dying. And then winter, death is raining. And then spring comes. Water, rain, and flowers begin to sprout and tree, the leaves begin to grow, we are reminded of death and life. See, all these material experiences tell us of deeper realities. And is it possible that our external uncleanliness is meant to remind us of a deeper spiritual uncleanliness? That we need not simply our physical bodies to be cleansed, but our souls as well. You think about this. In your every day, you wake up and you shower because you know you're dirty. You brush your teeth every day. You use the bathroom every day. All of these activities that we do every day are constant remind reminders of our continual need for physical cleansing. We are filthy. And yet, all of those things, I actually think, are meant to convey a deeper reality. They are God's signs to us that what really lays at the heart of the issue is that our souls have become impure. Our souls need to be cleansed. We have become defiled by sin. And this is why in the Gospels, Jesus' main focus is never physical healing. Yes, he does it, but it's not his focus. The focus of his ministry is the forgiveness of sins. 
He has not come to just cleanse us from our sicknesses and diseases, but He has come to cleanse our souls from the defilement of sin. He has come to wash us and to make us new. But the question is this, will you acknowledge that you're a spiritual leper in need of Jesus' hand of cleansing? You see, it isn't until you admit you're unclean that you'll seek the one who can cleanse you. And so will you come to him like this leper, falling down on your knees and imploring Jesus and crying out, if you will, you can make me clean. And if you come to Jesus like that, there's only one response you will receive. I will be clean. Jesus can cleanse us from all our defilement, our sin, our shame, because he will in the end, as we know how the story unfolds, he will bear our sin and shame in his own body when he's nailed to the cross. He will take our sin and put our filth to death. The holy will die for the unclean. The pure will die for the impure. And in so doing, we're told that everyone who embraces him will know his cleansing power. Now you may be thinking, not for me. Not for me. There's no way Jesus will cleanse me of my filth. You don't know the things I've done in life. The filth that fills my soul. I'm too defiled to know the cleansing power of Jesus. Well, my response to you is by telling you about a story in the Bible. There's a famous chapter in the Bible in Psalm 51. It's David, King David's confession. David became defiled, guilty, filthy from his sin. As king, he was to represent God. And in a moment of lust, he took a woman who wasn't his wife, Bathsheba, And he most likely raped her. And then to cover up his sin, he had her husband Uriah, a man of integrity, loyal soldier to the king himself, he had him killed. You see, David was utterly unworthy of God's forgiveness. Utterly unworthy of God's cleansing. Utterly unworthy of God's mercy. And friend, so are you. If you think you are so undeserving of God's grace, I got news for you. Yes, you're right. You're actually far filthier than you realize. And in Psalm 51, David confesses his sin to God. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to highlight some of the things that David cries out to God for his mercy. And he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. And you know how God respond, responded to David, the adulterer and the murderer? He said, I will be clean. You see, friends, Jesus didn't come for the clean. He came for the unclean. This is the man who is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our imitation. He's worthy of our worship. He is the man of prayer. He is the man with a purpose. He will accomplish his Father's will. He is a man full of compassion, and he has the power to cleanse your soul. But you must go to him and ask, Jesus, cleanse me. Let's pray. Father, I simply ask that you would purify and cleanse our souls this very day. And if there's any person here, Lord, who still hasn't truly come to you for the forgiveness of sins, for the washing away of sins, I pray that they would come today, that they would bow their knee to Jesus and cry out to him, cleanse me, Jesus, save me, and I will follow you all the days of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.